you know, just as we left off last time, talk, talking, talking about the experience of the self in communion with the other and what needs to be there, right? So, you know, we'll talk about this as we go forward, but, you know, start thinking about it even now. That Jesus Christ is who he is with us, for us, and in the power and presence of the Spirit in us as the church, right? As believers, and then, and then, and then as the church. Now we can talk about the other, right, who is near to us, one flesh union with the other. So now we can start to talk about what, is it, what, is it, what does it look like and what does it mean for us to um, experience the life of the other when the other, too, is not the same, right? So there's not a redundancy there, not the same. So what does it look like, you know, for instance, theologically, the church is female, right? Now me and Matt and Caleb as living members of Jesus Christ, living members of that woman who is the church as men, right? Um, how, did, how does that help us uh, relate as men to that one with whom we are one who is different, right? Um, what does it look like as we um, receive, and gosh, this, is, this, is, this kind of intimacy makes you blush, right? the Lord's Supper. This is my flesh. Hold it in your hands. Put me in your mouth. Right? See, that's, gosh, that's triggering even for some, right? Now, what does it look like for me as a man to say, what kind of intimate communion is this? And how does it help me live into my vocation and to learn how to be intimate in this way with, one, with, with the man, Christ Jesus? Um, what needs to be overcome, what needs to be healed, what needs to be summoned forth, right, fortified. What, what would it look like um, for um, Kate, Becca, Addie, as women, to have intimacy with Jesus Christ, right, that has no shred of pornea in it whatsoever, right? It actually, in, 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 in the life of God, right, the God who is love, there is a place for, you know, hesed love, agape love, which you talk about, but of course, phileo love, right? And eros love. If there was no place in God's life for it, there could be no place in our life for it that we could affirm. There's no place for pornea, right? There's no place for pornea in eros love. What does it look like for the Lord Jesus to love his bride, right? To love her, to romance her in a chaste way. And then what does it look like for us to engage in those ways that actually now start to redeem um, and overcome the way the world now forms us and maybe some of our own pasts and narratives. Eucharistic piety, there's a whole bunch there, right? Holy touch by the Lord. Okay, we can, we can maybe revisit that, but let's talk about Genesis 3. Things fall apart, right? Things fall apart. Let me read it. Uh, or big portions of it. I'll, I'll read a bit and, and then uh, and then I'll stop and, and we'll talk it through a bit. Where will I read to? Okay, I'll read through um, verse 13, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. How on earth did the serpent get in God's good garden? He said to the woman, 
did God actually say? This is really, really great. And you, uh, how, how the serpent, the evil one, he goes right for the thing, right, right for the thing that's precious. First, he goes to Eve. Why does he go to Eve? Because if you get Eve, you get everything, right? She is the pinnacle of creation. She is the mother of all life, right? Um, you get her, you get everything. He goes to Eve. Um, he goes right at the word, right? In the beginning was, in the beginning God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And, that, and now the commandment that is given to her, by the way, through Adam, she wasn't there when that was issued. He is supposed to speak, right? Use his strength to bless, preserve, and 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 uh, help fortify and proliferate shalom to the woman he goes. By the way, Jesus Christ receives his baptismal identity, off to the wilderness he goes, and here comes the devil, and he says, what does he hear? He hears, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. What does the devil go for? If you are the son of God, goes right for the thing, right? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here, we're emboldened now, right? Even more emboldened. The serpent said to the woman, you will not. He told you that. You will not. It's not true. God's word isn't true. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's withholding. The God who is the, um, the bestower of all good things, the God who is love that is turned out to us. That's not who he is. He's, he's withholding. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, good, right? So we've seen good, 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 good. It's not good. Man should be alone. Now we see it's good. It's that very thing that God that God marked off. Right? Don't transgress that boundary. That boundary is there for your flourishing. Don't do it. She saw that it was good, and that it was to be delight, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be was to be desired to make one wise, of course, as an act of defiance, flight from God. Right? By the way, don't miss. You know. Why does God get to mark off the boundaries of good and evil, right? Why don't you discern these things? Uh, why don't you, in other words, why don't, why don't you engage in, in constructing a moral project for yourself as an act of your own self-sufficiency, right? Man, you do that all the time. And she took. You see the language? She saw. She pronounced good. She desired. She took. She did not receive. She took. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her. There's an inversion that's going on there, right? Speak. Speak into the chaos. Bring about order. There's no speaking going on here. There's chaos present. No speaking. Now there's an invitation of chaos back in. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Yada, right? In the Hebrew, yada intimate first-hand acquaintance, not mere cognition, right? Not, not an ideational concept. They knew, they knew in their viscera, in their guts. They were naked, 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Do you see something there? What's the first thing that our primal parents want to cover? What do they address? Their, their, their exposure, their nakedness, their fallenness, um, they, want to, they want to address their genitalia, right? Their ishaness, um, because that's how they enact themselves, or, or a, a profound way at least. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? It's one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's so good. That's God's initial response to the breaking of the world, right? To the breaking of all things that He loves, for the breaking of His image. Where are you? And he said, he being Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Isn't that a funny thing to say? Do you guys need anyone to tell you when you're naked? <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny, who told you you were naked? Who have you been listening to? This ear was made for me, right? Um, by the way, it was made to be obedient, to hear my voice. Um, and who told you what that meant? told you that, you were, that, that that a response to your nakedness would be to, you know, grab for a fig leaf and run and hide from me. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, what have you done? What have you done? And she said, the serpent deceived me. And that is, that is the case, right? Deception. It's not high-handed. Deceived me, and I ate. If Adam would have eaten, it would have been high-handed. Deceived me, and I ate. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, things falling apart. What do we see right off the bat, and how does it how does it speak to maleness and femaleness? Their eyes are opened. Right. Their eyes are opened to what? Their nakedness. They're they're palpably, viscerally aware horrifyingly aware that they're naked. It's a different, it's a, with, with much different connotations, right? Um, not wholly present to the other one, not wholly present in a way that's open, vulnerable in the best sense of the word, right? Self-bestowal, self without fear, without estrangement, without any of those things. Nakedness is used in this sense, and you'll see it throughout scripture. Uh, Loss of respect, a violation of dignity, right? Um, you, your folly, your foolishness, your silliness has been exposed, right? And you're crushingly aware of it. Um, in a literal sense, in a figurative sense, right? This is lack of wisdom. Think about, um, by the way, Noah. You know, in a, in a nearer context, as that plays out narratively, he's drunk. His son beholds his nakedness, right? his lack of restraint, his lack of wisdom, so on and so forth, um, which you'll often see in the prophets. Right? Um, this is adultery and idolatry, right? Nakedness. <clears throat> now, think about this. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going back here. First Adam, male and female. Second Adam, 
our Lord enters into part, part of part of um, what crucifixion entails, and is certainly is nakedness, right? And they and they took his garments and they stripped him of his garments and they cast lots, right? So when the garments come off, you know, it's not like um, head to toe long johns, right? Um, he's naked. He's naked. He's naked before a bunch of Roman soldiers whose hearts are stones because uh, uh, they crucify people, right? You got You got to think. You got to think about the others. A monster to do the things you're gonna do. And I wonder what they said, right, as they beat him up and down. Right? I wonder. I wonder what kind of comments they said. I wonder where they beat him. Right. Something to think about when you think about the the, the nadir of human existence that our Lord enters into. He's naked. I've almost, I've almost never seen anything different. When I was in, I was in Innsbruck, Austria, hiking with my son, and over the Inns River in Austria, they have about a forty-foot, I mean, it's pronounced a forty-foot crucifix, and Jesus is naked. And I said, "Well, I got to go over there and get pictures of that." And he thought that was very odd, you know, um, because it offends us, right? And so, so, so our Lord is naked for us, and we'll say, we say, no, thank you, put that back on. Um, because one of the things, that, like Kierkegaard says, one of, the, one of the things the cross is, you know, it's, it's, it's our glory, but it's a devastating judgment as well, right? All the masks come off. He says, it, it's, the cross is like, uh, the, it's like the, the, the ringing of midnight at the masquerade, and all the masks come off. Jesus Christ's nakedness is a mirror to us, right? But it's a mirror, we're healed there. But it's stunning that you know he enters into all the things that we suffer, right? He leaves he leaves none of them untouched, even our nakedness. We can be clothed with him. <clears throat> he he is made a spectacle, right? And they and they all walked by and wagged their heads at him. Again, you know we know some of the things they said, not all. He's vulnerable. Naked before his friends and his mother, right? Dear, they were ashamed. We see this right away. Now, don't think here. Don't don't mistake shame for embarrassment. Here, you know, if you walk into the door and you trip and you know, spill your coffee down the front of you, you're embarrassed and you blush. Shame is not that. Right? Not that. Um, there's folly here, right? There's folly here. Again, shame often. Uh, you know, writes a really good chapter on this. Is oh gosh, what is his name? Cry the soul, Dan Allender. He's got a really good chapter on shame in the Old Testament. I think yeah, I, I think it's a biblical biblical kind of theology of shame in the Old Testament. Almost always associated with idolatry. Again, um, you have you have trusted in that which is foolish. Uh, that which is impotent, that which is a, it's a nothing, right? And now you're left, you're, you're bereft. Shame. They were naked and unashamed, now they're naked and profoundly, palpably ashamed, right? So what do they do? They, they assume this posture of self-sufficiency, 
that's, that's, that's what the breaking of the world looks like. They go for the fig leaves. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about, right? What kind of fig leaves do we reach for? We do that type of thing all the time. Um, they try to self-address, self-medicate, self-heal, self right? Uh, they patch together fig leaves, by the way, to cover their pointedness and perforatedness, one of the things they do there, um, so that they won't be vulnerable before the other, right? Because now there's, now there's alienation, now there's, now there's distrust, um, now there's lust, now there's all of those things, right? Concupiscence, disordered affections. Jeremiah says, you guys know this text, and it's stunning. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, right? The Lord's calling heaven and earth to, as his witness. Look at this. Be desolate. My people have committed two evils. A, they've forsaken me. That's one. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, having forsaken me, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold thirst right and they and, and they're and they're parched so they they go they go for the fig leaf whatever whatever that might be right there's lots of there's lots of fig leaves that we that we reach for <clears throat> but think about the pathology of idolatry right the thing the thing that cannot help you the thing which itself is an idol and a cipher um, and the pathology of idolatry means almost always you, you just you just keep tapping that thing that's all you know how to do right it can't deliver the more it can't deliver the the more you reach for it. <clears throat> that's where they are. They're afraid. And they flee from God. And that's that's part of the, the whole narrative of Scripture, right? Humanity, east of Eden, flees from God. God seeks, humanity flees. Moderns tend to think that God's like some Boo Radley character, some introvert, you know, hiding out in the cosmos somewhere, and everyone's altruistically <coughs> seeking. You know, people, people like Bard, Lewis too. Lewis, Lewis talks about the game of cat and mouse that people play, right? Seeking God under the guise of fleeing him. You know, mouse seeks cat, hoping to never find cat. Uh, people like Luther, people like Bart, uh, talk really well about that. The pathology of re religiosity, um, where it's not the gospel reality. Often, look, it's fig leaf stuff. It's fig leaf stuff. It's um, fleeing God under the guise of seeking him, right? But they, they hide from the Lord, right? They're, they're, they're afraid, they're ashamed. Um, they've got a, that sense of criminality, right? That, that could survive fear, not, not filial fear, not awe, reverence, that type of thing. Now it's servile fear. And they're hiding with fig leaves uh, in the trees of the garden while the Lord seeks them, right? So, I mean, you see that all through Scripture, and then, you know, Paul in it. You know, the first three chapters of Romans, the, the third chapter, it ends with that that, um, what would we call it, it's a crescendo, you know, and it's no one seeks God, not one. Not until, not until you're sought and found, now you do. Um, God is seeking right here, that response. Where are you? But check this out. They evade responsibility, right? The people, they're people that self-justify. That's, that's what, that's, this is, this is good theological psychology. <laughs> That's what, that's, what, that's what we do outside of Jesus. Peace to be outside of Jesus. That's what people do. <clears throat> they don't confess. They attempt to explain. Look at, look at the way the Lord comes and, and he speaks. Let me, let me look at it again. Check this out. 
Where are you? There's, there's invitation here, isn't there? It's stunning, there's invitation. What you're never gonna hear here is, why did you do this? The Lord never asked that. Where are you? I'm hiding from you. I'm afraid, I'm ashamed. Who told you you were naked? Right. And then the next line of, of questioning is, what have you done? The Lord never asks why. Why did you do that? Why do you, why do you think that is? Yeah. There's no sense in what they did, you know. Like it's, there's no like explanation, you know. Now there's one thing of you know, like 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 good self knowledge. Like what, what you know, I find I'm offended about something on Tuesday and by Friday I'm, you know, suppressing it by Friday and acting out and it's coming out sideways all over the place. It's good to think about think about yourself and you know. Uh, and, and have that kind of self-knowledge where you know what, you know, how you take a little bit. But there's a big difference between um, knowing that and trying to explain away these things. These things cannot be explained away, right? So if the Lord is to say, why did you do this? If you, if you can explain it away, you don't need to confess it. Right? If you can explain it, you can justify it. The Lord just says, confess. Bonhoeffer is so good in his conversations about these things. And it's so good in terms of even, you know, we confess when we say there is no explanation. <laughs> there is no justification. Right? And you see, gosh, you see that with you were little well, you too you, you your kids are too young. <clears throat> but you will say to your kids, Why did you do that? And they'll say, I don't know. You say you're talking right, you don't know. It's the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> but you really don't you don't really want to catechize people to, to self-justify right this is what you did right this is this is why it's problematic um, this, this is what it looks like to confess right the Lord's actually inviting confession here <clears throat> and, and what he gets is that woman right that helper you gave me um Man, nice gift. Giver of all gifts. You gave her. She did this. Right? <clears throat> and what we see is, um, now come the statements of judgment. Now come the statements of judgment. The, the, line, the line of engagement with the Lord is, let's come clean, let's talk about this. There's, there's flight. There's fig leaves. There's self-justification. Now there's pronouncement of judgment. Let's talk about this in terms of its specificity to male and female. He created them, right? God addresses male and female there, and then he kicks them out of the garden. Put <laughs> that too. It's by the way, it's profound. They didn't sashay out, right? They they got thrust out of the garden. <clears throat> we can never go back to the garden of God. Our path is forward. <clears throat> We won't talk about the serpent here. Um, except just to say this. Maybe let's say there's a passing. You know, often Genesis 3.15, it's a proto-Evangelion, right? It's the, it's the proto-gospel, the gospel before the gospel, as it were. You know, about you know, the, the crushing of the serpent and the bruising of the heel, right? It is. But, but I, would, I would just, I would say to that, there's a proto-proto-gospel that's even before that, and it is. 
for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Because that, by the way, it's before Genesis 3, it's before the fall. Paul's going to pick up on it and say, this is the mystery, this is the mystery of God's intent. It's embedded in creation. It's not called forth merely by the fall. So the, even the fall can't, can't assuage God from doing this. He's going to do it. He's going to do it um, no matter what. Um, but this is about all things being made for Jesus Christ, through him and for him, that for this reason is going to be enacted ultimately and brought to its fullness in Jesus Christ. That's a proto-proto-gospel. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's look at these. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. We've seen that word a couple, we see this in Genesis, it's the same word, you know, where the Lord says to Cain, sin's crouching at the door, desires to eat you up, man. It's like a lion that wants to gobble you up. But Eve also, she saw, she saw the fruit. She said it was good. She desired it. She took it, right? <clears throat> this isn't about, you know, holy romance. Your desire, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That is not pretty, right? That is not pretty. Um, the complementarity, uh, uh, necessary allies, something, something is broken here. Now, don't, don't, I wouldn't think about this in terms of um, these being um, specific in the sense that they're um, isolated right here. Like, you know, Adam has pain in raising his, Cain breaks Adam's heart, right? Um, it's not exclusive, but there's something here that speaks right to the ontology, right? Right to the ontology of what it means to be shot. Let's talk about it. What, what, what do you see here? In you functioning, right in, right in the epicenter, maybe we can say, of who I've called you to be, you will feel the brokenness of this world. Right? Think about it not as, not as curse, but as remedial. Right? You will know something's profoundly wrong. As you, as you live into... Um, precisely who I've made you to be as you live into your vocation as one who takes um, takes relationship and, and brings it to its higher order right um, as transformation happens as you as you take these relations into your body right because there's there's something about children but there's something about the way she relates to her husband you're gonna feel something is profoundly wrong What do you think of that? Yeah, so <clears throat> thinking about that and how, like, yes, in childbirth, but also in our relationships with others, it's like, yeah. You <laughs> right, can, so you can say, fine, then I just won't get married and have kids. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, we sense this, like, it's not as it ought to be. So then a common question in, like, Christian ministry is, like, oh, what are good boundaries? And that question has always kind of, like, confused me. Mm -hmm. 
and now thinking about like the fig leaves as like the first boundary of like giving yourself to another and so like I know that can go too far but I'm wondering if there's like a better word than boundary and a better like concept of what that means because if it is if it if to give yourself is what it means to be authentically human then like is that question something that should be as prevalent as it is right now yeah, I think we could probably massage those and nuance those, yeah. but, 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 but this is about the way in which we enact vocation, so it's about relational things. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, take these, don't take these as ultimate, but just, just think about them in terms of, like, kind of general patterns of the way people relate. Um, I do not know very many men who project date. Do you guys? Men don't usually do that. I don't know. <clears throat> I see potential in this person. I just see about 800 things that I'd like to change. Do you know what I mean, Eddie? <laughs> I think generally speaking, generally, um, men say, I love this woman and I hope she never changes. I think that's not quite the way it works the other way around, and that, and that, leads, that, that leads to tension. Men tend, tend to struggle with being isolated feeling lonely, right? Um, think about like when kids grow up and leave the house. Um, women tend to feel bereft. Does that make sense? Now, now there's all kinds of exceptions to that rule, but it, but it just speaks to the way in which we tend to relate. Maybe, well, okay, let me, let me, let me just move ahead here for a second, and then I'll go back to Adam. If, there, if there's a way in which God made male and female that's good and very good, think about the inversion of that. What would the inversion of the feminine look like? Because it plays out narratively in scripture all over the place. If beauty that invites, right, what's the inversion of that? Beauty that seduces. Beauty that takes life and brings it to its higher order. Beauty that seduces, that's on the pill. I mean it. <laughs> think, think about it. That plays out narratively all over the place. What do you see in Revelation? That great whore, right? <clears throat> strength that blesses the male. What, what's the inversion of strength that blesses? The tyrant, right? The tyrant that suppresses, the tyrant that punishes. <clears throat> um, beauty that manipulates, seduces, the tyrant that crushes. You guys have seen Braveheart, right? Edward I, Edward de Longshanks, you know, his, his daughter-in-law, the princess, says, you know, and I went to meet with William Wallace on the way back, I gave monies to all the poor to show your magnanimous, your, your magnanimous heart, and he is tagged. And he said, to show your greatness, she says, they'll see my greatness when I burn their villages down. It's a tyrant, right? The beast. You see it playing out narratively all over the place. <clears throat> let, me, let me just say this. Think about some of these things. What do we see playing out again in, in Genesis right after this? What, what tends to be a typically male way of, of dealing with that which troubles them is they rage and they lust. It's not typical for women to do that. Typically violent. When you guys hear about school shootings or thing, things like that on the radio, you don't, you don't tend to say, I wonder who she is. Don't enact, don't enact sinnership that way. Does that make sense? 
serial killer just apprehended. I wonder who she is. It'll be, it'll be a man. In the vast majority of the cases, because men enact, there's something about us ontologically that when there's that repentance, right, and, and living into that brokenness, what we're vulnerable to, we might talk about. But let's let's go let's go to the to Adam, to the man. He said, "Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, what? Because I gave you that command." Right, and I told you um, to steward it, and I told you to use your strength to bless, to bring order, not to allow chaos, right? Do you see the inversion of creation here? <clears throat> From the ground, God makes a man. From the rib, he makes a woman. The woman's deceived, right? She gives to the man who eats. Cursed is the ground because of you. See it? <clears throat> because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten to the tree which I commanded you, not her, you. <clears throat> you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And listen to this. Tell me if you guys feel this. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God says that not to, not to Eve, he says it to Adam. I've placed you here and to ennoble you. I've told you to bring to bring order out of chaos. I've told you to use your strength to bless and create shalom. As you do that, and he will do that, right? As you do, you will find thorns, thistles, right? It will be hard. It will cause you to sweat. As you take a step forward, you will take a couple steps back, right? You will feel futility, right? And to put it in modern parlance, right? As you go and get your, you know, two degrees or whatever, and you, you know, get a home and everything, and you start to feel like you're settled in this world, you'll look in the mirror and you'll see crow's feet and you'll say, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I mean it. You will, right? You laugh because you know it's true, right? Oh my gosh, it's happening already. I barely got started. I'm in regress. <clears throat> um, <laughs> you're supposed to, we're supposed to feel it. We're actually supposed to feel it. <clears throat> um, we're supposed to grieve it, um, not, in, not, in, not in futility, but in, in the realm of the gospel. The Lord says, I'm going to touch you right where you live, so when you enact your calling, you will not be able to do it in a, in a way of self-sufficiency. You will know something's wrong. I will remind you. I will make it very hard for you to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You will have to... <clears throat> And to dust you will return. So what do, what do men usually, typically, typically, what do they struggle with? That's basic to the image. A sense of futility, um, a deep suspicion that they don't have what it takes to live well in the world, and they're just waiting for the loudspeaker to go on and for the other shoe to drop and say, um, excuse me, Deacon John, <laughs> Dr. Clark, you're a fraud, right? You don't have what it takes to be a man in this world. Caleb, you and Matthew, too. <laughs> 
women tend to struggle with loneliness. Men tend to struggle with, I don't think people respect me. Right? Not exclusively, typically. Does that make sense? There's differentiation here. As you live into the vocation, tend to feel that. <clears throat> That's why I think something like, let's say, rage and lust. Um, uh, it, it's near, it's near, it, men are more vulnerable to it because as they enact their, their vocation east of Eden and they feel inadequate and they feel weak, right? And they feel passive and things like that. Those are, initially, those are a self. Because there's nothing romantic about it, right? It's, a, it's actually about violence. And it's about power, but there's a massive dopamine hit, right? You get it? It, as, it assuages that. If you're not going to repent, you're going to be really tempted in, in that way. Because now we're all quiet. <laughs> <clears throat> I might add, right? Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. These are statements of judgment. These are remedial. They're remedial. God's merciful to us. <clears throat> this is um, severe mercy. <laughs> but do you, do you see the gender specificity of it? It's really, really interesting. interesting. It's more than that. What do you guys want to say? When I teach this at Moody, I, 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 it takes everything in me not to cry when I, when I talk into the man, he said, because I'm like, I feel that all the time. It's not all I feel, but man, do I feel that. What do you guys want to say? Oh, come on, talk to me. I think it's interesting that you, um, like, I really, I like that you distinguish between like how women and how men both experience their alienation from God. Mm -hmm. I think when, like, especially um, <clears throat> throughout the history of the church, whenever I read a theologian talking about sin, mm -hmm. oftentimes I get the impression that they're talking So, so we, I mean, even when you think about this, right, our, our primary engagements, our primary relational engagements, we enter in from the outside, right? The pointed one does. Um, our temptation would be not to enter in. Don't do that, right? Um, most men, right, you, you start talking to most middle-aged men, let's say, especially in our culture, and, and there's, there's just broader cultural reasons for it. I get all of that. But most of them will be like, I struggle with people not respecting me. I have a hard time making friends. I feel isolated. It's not typically that the other way around, right? Because, because um, Isha, the woman, right? She takes these relationships into herself, right? How this works out with families is um, it's more often the woman will be tempted to be enmeshed with the kids. And the men will say, I can't wait for them to get out of here. I can build a life apart from them. 
or the one who says, I've been working all the time and I just, I just, I just looked up and now my kids are 18 and they're gone. What was all that for? <laughs> Lots of cultural things there, but there's something bigger than that. There's, there's, something, there's, there's something deep, deep, deep in the way we are. Um, yeah. On the flip side of that, would you say women struggle to receive and stay open? Oh, for sure. Like, would that be kind of like the biggest? For sure. For sure. And that, again, we're, we're, we're big people. This is just big boy and girl stuff. Um, what goes on in marriage is often um, uh, men, my sex drives higher. Right? Most men would say that. Women, I don't want I don't want us to enact our, our our maleness and femaleness in the way you necessarily want to. I want it to look differently. Right? Yeah. I feel like I have conversations all over the church as well, like women or either even mother church will shut down hospitality and close the doors and you kind of see it played out. Yeah. In so many ways. Yeah. There's, there's, there's just endless ways then we can we can start to, to think about then what, what, what might that look like even in terms of our, our mission to the world, right? Uh, what would that look like if church is holy mother? Um, hospitality, right? Um, how we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ here, what, what, what the lordship of Jesus Christ does in terms of protection, right? Just real strength that blesses. Out of the chaos of the world, right? Um, come, come here under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and don't feel oppressed by His lordship. Feel liberated <laughs> under His lordship. There's freedom where the Lord is the Lord. Um, it's where the Lord isn't the Lord, right? That chaos comes back at. The Lord, the Lord isn't with His bride and not speaking. He speaks. Um, let, let's say this lastly. <laughs> a couple things here. This is amazing. Verse 20, chapter 3. <laughs> let, let, me, let me read it again because the response is stunning. By the sweat of... This is, this is not good news, right? Uh, on the face of this. This lands pretty hard. If, if it's remedial, it's a severe, severe mercy. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken... For you are dust, and to dust you will return. So repent and believe the gospel, right? That's what we say on Ash Wednesday. This is, his, this is Adam's response. And the man called his wife's name Eve, for she was the mother of all living. That is really beautiful. There's hope there, right? There's profound hope. All of this is coming from you. Right. This is this is not the end of the story, at all. Right. There's profound hope. He re, he received the state the, the, the pronouncement of, of judgment, in hope. Now all life. Right. She comes from, from the man. Now all life, male and female. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes from her. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That too is a, is a beautiful mercy, right? I'm, I'm addressing, I'm addressing um, the, the problem that you have here. 
there's worlds of you know all kinds of exegesis there, but let's just say that. And then God kicks them out of the garden. <laughs> he drives them out, right? That tells us something narratively about the whole of Scripture. It's not, um, it's not like, oh, look, squirrel. And they ran off and they couldn't find their way back. Because that, then it's, well, find your way back home, you know. Um, let nostalgia take its course and find your way back to the garden. You can never go back to the garden again. Your redemption will be that way. <laughs> I've just been thinking about this so much lately and uh, feeling the pain of the fact like I so deep I'm such an idealist mm -hmm. I so deeply want to see human programs work yeah. and they don't and just like even watching um, <clears throat> like you know in the secular realm watching like try as we may to maintain a unity through um, in our democracy, like it's not happening. Like there's such fundamental division. I don't know how it'll heal. I don't know what our country will look like in ten years. And then, you know, bringing me a little bit closer to home, still looking at the ACNA and just seeing like, oh my goodness, like this was this was a project of renewal, right? We moved away from the Episcopal Church because we recognized like some some really fundamental ways that unfaithfulness was playing out and we are trying to be faithful and then watching it like not fully unified, you know, watching that there's holdouts, there's people who are who are uh, there's competing visions of like what a direction, a good direction, a faithful direction would look like. Um, there's competing values, there's um, politics gets mixed in and just like watching this human program not unify, it's just been making me like so desire to return to the garden and you know, have that place of unity and flourishing and union with God and one another and just seeing like it will just not happen and the idealist in me uh, is just finding that to be a really, really hard pill to swallow. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, actually, uh, on Easter, well, no, it wasn't Easter morning, it was Good Friday. Bishop Stewart talked about that, right? Um, the longing the longing for the, the, the pre-technological age, <clears throat> the longing for the, you know, and, and, you know, I sense that too, you know. The longing for the 80s. Um, once the tube's out of the toothpaste, it just never goes back in, right? The, the nostalgia, or, or even the primitiveness, right? If, if the church could just look like it did next, won't, right? History happens, right? God redeems, but, but we're not going back there. Uh, and, and the things that happen, God redeems them, but we can't just jump over them. We can, ne we can never get back there. The way is blocked, right, with the cherubim. The way is blocked. Now you sojourn. Now it's this way, right? And it will be hard, and it will be. <laughs> and, and this is the context in which you will feel these things, right? It's precisely there. I might have missed something, but this, uh, just what you guys are seeing reminds me of the idea of like the proneness towards humans throughout history towards utopia or escapism. Mm -hmm. And Shreemont talks about that yep. a lot, but like that desire to go back to the garden is like the utopia. Like, right, there's the desire, and so we try all these man made ways to like create this utopia, <laughs> whatever it is. We'll, we'll, we'll be pacifists and form. Um, 
nudist colonies. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, and, and then the and then the other side is like kind of this, this end times of eschatology of like just escape. Like I just want to be done with this world. Like let's just get out of here, you know? Because, you know, assume, they're assuming at that point it'll be better that way. Yeah. You know, like when we escape from, from this world. <clears throat> um, and so it's really interesting it's just like the Christian narrative is neither of those things, but it's, you know, the restoration. Give your life, right? So it's so it's what we talked about earlier. It's 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 marriage and again whether you're celibate right or married it's marriage we're, we're participating us as the body of jesus Th these bookends right these hermeneutical inclusios of, of all of human history we're all participating uh, as sons and daughters of adam and eve in jesus christ as sons and daughters of the church uh, we're participating in these and our and the call is right to give your life and, and to pick up your cross, right? Even, even as the, the, uh, the second Adam bore his cross and then gives us a cross, pick up your cross and follow me. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we can say this, or, or we need to say this. <clears throat> you know, we, when we think about, th there's, there's real alienation here, right? There's real tension. And so when we say things like, you know, it's our sin that caused this, well, that's the presenting issue. But ultimately, ultimately here, it's God says, leave. And he follows us, right? He doesn't, lead, he doesn't, he doesn't um, kick us out and not follow us. He pursues us. Um, but, it's, but it's actually God's, God's holy hostility, his love that burns white hot, which needs to be overcome. And so God gives what he provides. Who's, who's going to suffer most for this? Well, well, the Father and the giving of the Son and the Son and His broken body, right? Where do we, you know, Paul talks about that in Romans. What's, what's the justification of God, the demonstration of God's righteousness? That He doesn't heal this from, from the outside with some fiat from afar. He enters in and in the self-imprecation of, of, of God and Jesus Christ, He heals this. He's the one who ultimately takes the hit for it. But it's, 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 it's wonderful stuff to think about in terms of, you know, um, we're, we're seeing the way in which God is going to overcome our breaking of the world, and it's going to call forth the breakingness of the, the brokenness of the body of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about male and female, not as though we have it. We have them. Um, in, in redemption, Jesus Christ. This is my body given for you, right? This is my body given for your body. Find all that, find all that you lack and all that you need in my body in the context of the body, which is the body of church, in whom, in her, you are living members and I am the head, right? By the way, one, one, one is never redundant. The body is in a redundancy of the head the body is never the Lord, right? There's, there's order, there's non-interchangeable relationship, there's wholeness with distinction, never separation. Our Lord is never, a, you know, a floating head, disembodied. The church is never a body that's decapitated. Both are just monstrosities. 
never redundancy. It's really, really lovely. In the body of in the body of the church, our bodies receive his body given for us. Now, do you see the reciprocity? In light of the mercies of God, says Paul in Romans 12, in light of the mercies of God, offer yourselves a living sacrifice. There's reciprocity, right? And here we go now, self-giving. What part of myself? All of yourself. What, what part of Jesus Christ or what aspect did he not, um, of our humanity, did he not assume and give for us and redeem for us? The whole of it. What are we now to offer? The whole of it. There's initiation, there's receptivity, and there's response. The church as the bride of Jesus. Male and female, he redeemed them, recreated them. Here what we see is this grand, glorious mystery of marriage as the central theme, I think, the integrative motif, or at least a, right? There's, there's other ways to talk about that, but um, it's just massive of scripture. What we might call, what, what uh, John Paul II uh, really hits on, the nuptial realities of the reality of our body, our bodies bound to Christ's body and the body of the church gives us the language and the meaning of redemption. It's the most profound way to talk about redemption. And it's the one the Lord gives us. Let's, let's look at uh, Ephesians 5. There's lots of places we could go, but this is a big one, right? So, so what we saw in Ephesians 1 <clears throat> was God considers himself incomplete, right? Incomplete. In his plenitude, in a self-giving plenitude, he considers himself incomplete apart from his bride, and he will not be apart from her. Goes to Golgotha and back, Gethsemane and back, Helen back for her. Now, we've got Ephesians 5. Let me read it. Deep breath, you ready? I'll start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Oh no. In the context of the gospel, this is absolutely lovely, where the freedom of the Lord is, right? Um, where, where there is space and, and, and bounds for human flourishing. This is not demeaning, it's ennobling. The husband, the cafe of the wife, even as Christ is the Catholic of the church. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, right? Christ is the Catholic, the head of all, all humanity. Humanity is sourced in him because all things are from him, you know, from the Father through the Son, uh, for the Son. All things find their, the fulfillment of their vocation, their completeness, and are held together in him. The cafe. Now think about what the cafe does. Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, you know, the Father is the cafe of the Son. Sourcedness, right? Sourcedness. So what does the Son do? What does the Father do with the Son as the cafe? He takes the Son and he glorifies him. The glory of the Son isn't the diminishment of the Father, it's the exaltation of the Father, right? What does Jesus Christ do? He takes the church as, as his cafe and he exalts her, right? He wishes her to be radiant. It doesn't diminish him, it exalts him, right? What does the husband do to the wife, right? This is a microcosm of the cosmos. It's a microcosm of reality. He takes her and he exalts her, right? Um, 
her being lifted up, it does not diminish him, it ennobles him. It's a small husband that would want to do this, right? <clears throat> the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, submit to husbands. So it's the realities of the gospel, Christ and his church, that's informing this, obviously. We'll go back. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right here we have the category of marriage and martyrdom, right? Martyrdom in the noblest sense, you know what I mean? Um, the cruciformity, right? Foot washing. Jesus, well, how does Jesus Christ love? He, he spends himself. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water of the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, right? Glorious, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, chaste. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because in a profound sense, right? They are. There's a complementarity. There's distinction without difference, without separation. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Now what's, what's being said there? Really? But the Gerizim demoniac, right? That's the whole point. Um, to rip and tear at your own flesh is, right, insanus. It's, there's profound disorder going on there. A husband that doesn't love his wife is like a garrison demoniac ripping and tearing at his flesh, right? It's a form of self-contempt. <clears throat> For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just like we have all day, we've been doing that already today in, in all kinds of ways. Just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body, right? Not, not fictively, right? If, 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 we're, if we want to talk in terms of metaphor here, we're talking about sacramental symbol that tells us what's true, right? Um, material enactment of profound, the, the mysteries of the gospel. Look what he does. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It takes us right back to creation, right back to the first Adam and the first Eve. This mystery is profound. What an understatement. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Genesis 2. What does it refer to? What's the ultimate reference? Christ and the church. Why did God make the world? To sum it up in Jesus Christ. And do you, do you see all the, the parallels, right? <clears throat> the first Adam, <clears throat> deep sleep. From his open side, the rib. There's, there's ontological sameness, right? There's, there's shared life, there's shared mystery. Um, the first Eve deeper sleep, the second Adam. It's no good for him to be alone. Deeper sleep of death. From his pierced side, the new Eve. This, this Eve is the mother of all the living. This Eve is the mother of all who are fully alive in Jesus Christ. 
this Eve, the first one, takes life to generations into herself and makes room there um, and transforms the seed in her very body and offers it to the world. <laughs> right? The new Eve, she's, she is not on the pill. Right? The new Eve is conceiving all the time. A, a way you might even want to think about this and the way the church has talked about this. Um, the twin breasts of Holy Mother Church, Word and Sacrament, right? The baptismal font, what is that? It's the womb of Holy Mother Church, right? And she begets, not in lust, but in holiness, not in concupiscence, right? But she begets as she lives in holy chastity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and there's procreation, repro reproductivity, going on, right? Right out, right out of the womb of the church, right? We come forth a new birth. <clears throat> However, right, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, right? proper sense of <coughs> dignity, right? self-value, um, that, that, that holy self-love that contextualizes what it would mean to love one another, uh, the other well. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Talk about that, right? Um, male and female, he created and recreated. We participate. There's nobody single here. Nobody single. It's, it's an absolute impossibility. We participate um, as living members of Jesus Christ, and just as and just as you know, there are different gifts and charisms. One of one of them is right. Um, we in this grand marriage um, participate in what we, we we might say like, and for lack of a better way to say it, uh, merely human marriages, right? My wife and mine are merely human marriages. There's all kinds of ways in which that would break down, but you get my point. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, second person of the Trinity, and his bride. The church is a divine human complement. Right? <clears throat> These marriages manifest realities about the gospel. Right? This marriage can't be two narcissists turned in toward one another, so now there's a a, a narcissistic duality turned, turned in against the world, right? Um, but now, for the life of the world, right? Let this be a warm hearth, which can enrich life, and it's a procreative reality too, right? Perpetuate life. You know how in the church sometimes we do things like this. Well, we're gonna preach into marriage for a little while. All you singles, I know this has nothing to do with you, right? going to preach into holy celibacy all you married people don't don't stay home right as the body of Jesus Christ what what do human marriages do as they're informed by the gospel and being transformed by the gospel in the womb of holy mother church what what do they do they they invite life in not just biological life right but they're there for the life of the world they're a witness a living witness to the reality of the gospel Those, those who are celibates, 
we can, Eddie, you want to talk about this, maybe we all want to talk about this for a while, that other um, dimension of the story, right? The now and the not yet, that other sign of the kingdom. Um, this too, right? This, this vocation, the male and the female, also bears witness to the realities of the gospel, also is a living image of the reality of the gospel in a different way. They're complementary. They're not competing, not better than, worse than, right? Not that. Well, okay, okay. I won't argue with Paul. Better not. <clears throat> what do you guys want to say? What do you What do you want to say? There's so much to be said. So, what do we want to talk about first? I, this is something I I read once, and so I probably won't say it back well. But I just want to know what you you think. I think it was some article I was reading about an early church father, he was articulating that, um, like, he actually saw marriage as, like, not, like, contradictory to celibacy because it was, like, an outworking of, like, faithful sexuality within the context of Christ in the church. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, it's, so in a sense, it's not even to say, like, like, he wasn't even drawing a distinction. It was just kind of like, it's a way to, I don't even know if I'm, I'm explaining this right. Maybe you've heard of this. I don't well, know. You, you, might, you might say, you know, yeah, lot, actually lots of the fathers talk like that. And you might even say something like this, right? Um, marriage is marked by chastity. Jesus Christ is with his bride, and it's marked by holiness. Not a lack of eros. Right, and, and that's important, right? Because if, if, if Christ and his bride is to inform human marriages by the gospel and transform them, and that, and that marriage, that grand marriage, is devoid of eros, what does that tell me mine should look like? Not good, right? And here's, you know, Matt talked about the mixing of metaphors. In, in the life of the church, we would say, you know, my wife is my sister, right? For me to lust after her. Boy, you know, that's something weird. Or any of my other sisters. It's an incestuous way to be, right? So marriage is marked by chastity. It's not like, hey, if you if you burn, right, go get married, and then you know chase your spouse around for the next thirty years. Well, uh, that's right. Evangelical <laughs> in a lot of yeah. ways really misinterpreted. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Direction. <clears throat> you called you called the chastity there. You called the patience, right? And, and then and then you're by the way called as male and female too live into the rhythms of marital unity um, where there's all there's all kinds of um, seasons and times where refrain right um, those who are not married circumstantially or by charism right you too are to be marked by chastity right not by the by the lack of the uh, a lack of operation of your sexuality sometimes we talk about celibates like that they're not enacting their sexuality. They're not easy. Celibacy is an asexuality. Of course, you're, of course you're living into your sexuality. You're stewarding it in a very specific way and aiming it toward the kingdom and living into the realities of the kingdom in a very specific way. To, to be a celibate doesn't mean that you are devoid of fatherhood or motherhood or brotherhood or sisterhood or sonship or daughterhood. 
all of those things take place in, in, in the life of the church for the life of the world, right? That we turned outward in mission. What else do you guys want to talk about there? We got a couple of minutes. I know Eddie wants to talk about stuff. How about a gospel vision for something like this? Paul talks about greeting with the holy kiss and things like this, right? So what, is it, what does it look like in the life of the church, especially in the era of Title IX and all of the, you know, Me Too and all of those things? What does it look like for us to be with one another? And it's got to be really safe in our hands, right? And this takes maturity. Um, what does it look like for us to um, love and affirm one another? in non-gnostic ways what does holy touch look like right what, what what does it look like for the circumstantial celibate um who is 35 and hoping to be married and not yet or the one who you know <laughs> at 50 years old right living out genesis and all of a sudden right uh, some man says gosh i was going to retire in 10 years and, and, and my wife died what what is what is what's a vision Right. Is there is there ways in which we have holy touch? Men for men, uh, women for men, so on and so forth, in which we nurture people in the, in the context of the life of the church. Right. I think I do think we need to have a much better. Res does that great, and our diocese I think does that great. But there's a whole lot of a whole lot of living into. Um, what is what is what does communal life look like? and um, being with one another and holy chastity look like um, when for all kinds of reasons, economic, sociological, and everything else, right, you're seeing more and more people, more and more people get married late or not at all. What's a, what's a vision for that in the life of the church and how can that then be really significant and missional? Maybe, a, maybe a, an evangelical um, monastic vision, really. Right, uh, a, a real kind of uh, vision for a parish that has place for that. Right? Real, real gospel significance in life. And where are we going? Right. Um, this is my body given for you. Right. This eschatological feast. <clears throat> It's telling us something about the ultimate eschatological fulfillment of male and female. He created them, right? We, we raised, glorified, embodied eternally, right? Male and female. <clears throat> what it looks like then for us to live into, right? Um, uh, a, a vision for that. Boy, there's so much to say there. There's so much to say there. Do you guys want to talk about that at all? I think one of the mistakes we make is, um, you know, marriage is only for this life. Like, like, you know, if, if we said to one, if we said to Caleb, you know, do you think that you'll you'll know your dad and your mom eternally in new heavens and new earth? Of course, we have a relationship with your wife, that most basic relationship. Oh no. It's not marked, right, by the provisionality, the, the sacrament of, of um, engaging in one flesh union. 
right? That is provisional because what it's supposed to tell us as we're informed by the gospel is this is this is what it means to belong to another. This is this is what it means um, to be received. Um, this is what the this is a mark of the gospel, right? This is a, this is an anticipation of the fullness of time. Now, when the fullness comes, right, that too goes away because it's a provisionality, not the relationship, but that specific enactment of the relationship goes away, right? Because it's a kingdom, it's a kingdom calling. And by the way, you know. Um, there's a whole lot more um, pressing in theologically we can do there. When you think about the cycles of life, and even when you think about the cycle of, of that, right? Arousal, engagement, climax, satisfaction, and it's cyclical, right? What is it supposed to teach us, informed by the gospel? To long for heaven. They're supposed to teach us, right? is our lust there. Um, holy chastity, no pornea, um, real eros, real eros, um, and, a, and a vision for male and female, created, redeemed, fulfilled, perfected, glorified, right, embodied, and living out that embodied vocation forever. The end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Praise be to God, and may it be so. Eh? Mm -hmm. This is the gospel. Can, can I just say this? If you when, you when you look at when you look at the world, one of the things you want to ask is, where do I see lightning rods for corruption? Where you see that, now you know something good is there. Why does the evil one go to Eve? Right? What are some of the things that I mean? Oh, gosh, you just. You mention them. What is this? Right? What is sex? What does it mean to be a male or a female? What does it mean to be? Um, what is marriage? <laughs> right? Lightning rods. Why? Because they're so good. They're so doggone good. Um, that the evil one goes for them. Right? Pope John Paul says, um, "Humanity. The world hates mystery. And if you've ever, if you've ever doubted that, so watch how the world will." eat and rip apart marriage, right? Because it's the living sign of the gospel. Um, that which God makes with the most potential for good when it's perverted has the most potential for harm, right? All of these things, right, we're looking for, for, the, for, for redemption. So I think there's just so much, like, room for gospel witness having to do with these things. You don't avoid them. You just like live right into them, right? I uh, live right into them. And that goes even with things like fatherhood, right? Uh, how we would think in holy ways about, uh, as we confess our father, right? Patriarchy. Uh, 
of relationships that actually have hierarchical structure where everybody wins there rather than everybody loses. All kinds of wonderful things. Big boy and big girl things to talk about, though. Bless you guys. I'm out.